Chicago, 1893. Officially, this is the Columbian Exposition, but it's better known as the Chicago World's Fair. On the west side of the fairgrounds, there's a giant contraption standing 264 feet high. It has 36 platforms attached to this huge circle. And if you're brave enough, it'll carry you high in the air, and you can tell all your friends you rode on this incredible wheel built by a man named George Ferris. Not far from that, in one of the international culture exhibits, there's a dancer. She goes by the name Little Egypt. She wears a skimpy outfit with lots of sheer silk, and she dances without moving her feet or her head, just the rest of her body. For this American audience, it's their first taste of belly dancing. But they don't call it belly dancing. They call it the Hoochie Coochie, because that's a way better name for it. But the largest crowd of all is gathered around a man outside in a plaid coat, standing on a table, yelling to the masses. I promise you that this is the most potent, the most powerful brand in the world. This secret revolutionary formula makes every man a king. His name is Clark Stanley. He's got a row of bottles on display. I promise you that this particular formula will make you a superman, bigger and stronger than anybody else. A small, frail-looking gentleman leaning on a cane makes his way to the front and asks to try some. Stanley gives him a small sip from a tin cup. He gulps it down, turns, looks at the crowd, and wipes his lips. A smile grows across his face. I feel amazing. He drops his cane and starts to dance. The crowd goes nuts. The man pulls out two quarters, hands them to the salesman, and walks away clutching a bottle of this amazing medicine. Revolutionary, ladies and gentlemen, the secret process of the age, the medical discovery of the age. This snake oil will cure anything that ails you. That's right. Clark Stanley is literally selling snake oil. That's not just a name. He actually uses real snakes. In some of his shows, he takes a live rattlesnake, cuts it open, and tosses it in a pot of boiling water to extract the oil out of it. Now, of course, you've already guessed that this stuff doesn't actually work, but Stanley and his friend with the cane, well, they're already out of town by the time the good people of Chicago in 1893 figure any of that out. Here's the thing, though. That snake, it's not just for show. He got that idea from something a lot of hardworking people were already using. In the mid to late 1800s, 20,000 Chinese laborers came to the U.S. and worked on the Transcontinental Railroad. Now that work was physically demanding to say the least, and stiff backs and sore muscles were very common. Many of those workers used an herbal remedy from back home, made with the oil of the Chinese water snake. And those Chinese laborers swore that it worked. And you know what? They were probably right. See, water snakes live in cold water, so they have these omega-3 fatty acids. And that's a kind of fat that doesn't congeal in the cold. You've probably heard of it from cod, right? Cod liver oil. Well, omega-3 fatty acids have anti-inflammatory properties. They're good for you for a whole bunch of reasons. So, yeah, the snake oil used in traditional Chinese medicine probably really does help with sore joints. 
But here's the problem. Stanley, he's not using Chinese water snakes. He's using rattlesnakes from the hot, dry desert. They don't have anywhere close to the levels of omega-3 fatty acids that water snakes do. The oil extracted from rattlesnakes? In all likelihood, totally useless. Now, did he know that? Probably not. I mean, I only know that because I looked it up and I found a paper from 1989 that breaks down how much of the omega-3 fatty acids can be found in different kinds of snakes. Maybe Clark Stanley just figured a snake is a snake. Or maybe, wait for it, maybe Clark Stanley was the snake, huh? See what I did there? Anyway, that's one of the dilemmas with this stuff we call snake oil. Do the people peddling it actually believe in it, or are they lying to make money? And ultimately, does that even matter? I mean, if the science is bad, what do we care if the person selling it to us believes it or not? I'm Dan Riskin, formerly the host of Discovery Channel's Daily Planet, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. This series is about scientists, how they think, how they work, and what challenges they face. Already, we've shared the stories of some of the great scientists of the past. Famed Madame Curie of France opens the way with experiments and discoveries of the hidden mysteries and marvels of rare element called radium. And we've got plenty more still to come. Albert Einstein's theory of relativity is formula used in discovery of atomic energy. We aren't just reliving history here, though. Every story from the past helps us better understand the issues facing scientists today. This podcast is produced by Symar, a medical research company that, let's be honest, you probably never heard of before you started listening to this podcast. But don't feel bad because I hadn't heard of them either before I started doing this podcast. But what I've learned about them so far, it's fascinating. They are, like a lot of great researchers of the past, trying to disrupt a paradigm. They're attacking the growing epidemic of type 2 diabetes from a whole new angle. And here's the thing that makes it interesting. is When you do that, when you come out of left field with a totally new approach to an old problem, a lot of people disregard you. They say, fake news. Or if it's medicine, they might even say that you're trying to peddle snake oil. This is episode 6. In the 1970s, Joseph Sledge was poor and unemployed. He was a Vietnam vet, and he had no fixed address. He got caught stealing a box of clothes from a department store, and he was sentenced to four years in prison. He was locked up at White Lake Prison Camp, a minimum security facility in North Carolina. One September evening, just after dusk, he climbed the fence and he ran. Covered a couple miles on foot, then he stole a car. The keys had been left in the ignition. A couple of days later, in a town 60 miles away, a patrol officer identifies a stolen car, flicks on his lights, his siren. The chase ensues. Sledge ditches the car, takes off on foot, and gets away, but not for long. He's arrested the next day just across the state line in Dillon, South Carolina. It's not much of a story. A small-time thief on the lam for less than four days. Except something horrific happened during those four days. In Elizabethtown, about halfway between the prison camp and the town where the first patrol officer spotted Sledge, two women, 74-year-old Josephine Davis and her 57-year-old daughter Eileen Davis, 
were stabbed to death in their home. The case got a ton of attention locally. People were terrified. And the local police were under a lot of pressure to find the killer. A $2,500 reward was offered for any information on the case. But after a year, police still had zero suspects. So they doubled the reward, offering $5,000. And in the 1970s, that is a ton of money. So yeah, that $5,000 reward, that got them a lead. Meanwhile, Sledge is in jail serving out his sentence. He had bounced around a few different jails, and a couple of guys he had shared cells with along the way ratted him out. In exchange for the five grand and some leniency on their parole hearings, they testified that Sledge had admitted to killing the two women. The case went to trial. Sledge insisted he was innocent. Really, all the police had on him were those jailhouse informants. So the jury was skeptical. They deliberated for two days, but couldn't reach a verdict. It was a hung jury, and the case was dismissed. The prosecutors called for a new trial, and this time they brought forward a new piece of evidence, some hair found at the scene. Now, this is the late 1970s. Police are nowhere near using DNA yet. But into the courtroom walks a microscopic hair analysis expert from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He explains to the jury that the FBI has 16 criteria for matching hairs, including pigment distribution and the structure of the medulla. That's the innermost layer of the hair. He told the jury that the hair found at the scene, when studied in the laboratory, under a microscope, matches the hair taken from the accused on all 16 criteria. Specifically, what they said is that the hairs are a match, quote, with reasonable scientific certainty. Now, I have no idea what that phrase means. Oh, wait, yes, I do. I know, it means nothing. It is total nonsense. Reasonable scientific certainty. I guess that probably means you're a scientist and you're trying to make a judgment call. That's basically what it means. But that didn't matter. Joseph Sledge was found guilty on two counts of murder and sentenced to life in prison. He was convicted because of snake oil. Bad science masquerading as fact. People knew what they wanted to see, so it was easy to convince them with pretty weak evidence. In other words, they were looking for proof. And when you want proof, there's always a way to find that. There's always a way to look at things so you'll support your claim. That's easy. That's why good scientists try to disprove things. But the prosecution and the FBI expert, they weren't doing that. Yes, the hair matched on 16 of 16 criteria, so I guess it could have been his hair, but the experts didn't say what the statistical likelihood of an error was. Are there five people in all of the United States that have hair like that? Or are there five million people like that? What's the likelihood you're wrong? That is the kind of thinking that scientists do. The FBI agents didn't arrive at the wrong conclusion because they made a mistake. They just asked the wrong question. They asked, do these hairs match? And the answer to that was, yeah, they match. But the question doesn't rule out other possible matches. Other people who have hair that looks identical under a microscope. Asking the question properly and setting up your experiment properly to answer it, that is how you do science. Bad science. Finding evidence that proves what you already know you want to see is only half of the problem with snake oil. The other half 
is that the people selling it are often motivated to perpetuate the lie. Like Clark Stanley, he pockets 50 cents every time he sells a bottle. Well, minus production costs, so he's got to get rattlesnakes. I don't know what they cost in 1893, but probably not very much. But the prosecutor in the Joseph Sledge case, he made out much better than that. His name was Michael Easley. And at the time of the trial, he was fresh out of law school. It was his first year as a prosecutor. Convicting a man of double homicide in a case that has been declared unsolvable, that is going to do good things for your career. And it did. Easley soon became a district attorney and then a state attorney general. And in 2001, he was elected governor of North Carolina. Now, Easley had already retired from politics when in 2015, DNA testing was finally used to prove that the hairs from the crime scene, you know, the ones that match Sledge on 16 out of 16 criteria, were definitely not his. It's amazing what a difference it makes when you try to disprove something instead of prove it. It's not just the technology that was better all those decades later. It was the whole scientific approach. Without the testimony about the hair, there was nothing to show he'd ever been in that house. And so, after spending 34 years in prison, Joseph Sledge was exonerated. At the age of 68, he finally walked out of prison a free man. So, what did we learn about snake oil today? Well, sometimes people are outright criminals. They use the veneer of science to make themselves seem legit and get what they want. Like Clark Stanley selling snake oil at the World's Fair. But sometimes, snake oil sells because people are just clinging to their beliefs. They have this continuation bias, this tendency to stick to a plan of action, to a set of beliefs, even in the face of new information. Now that is the opposite of what you're supposed to do as a scientist. But that is exactly what happened with the FBI experts that were studying the hair samples. See, the thing is, they had other evidence that contradicted the hair findings. They had handprints in the blood at the crime scene that did not match Sledge's hands. But they disregarded it because it didn't fit with the way they saw the world. Snake oil can have effects on people, very negative ones. Just ask Joseph Sledge, who spent 34 years in jail because of it. But the thing about snake oil is, there is a cure. And the cure is rigorous science. Welcome to Act 3. This is the part of the show where we pivot from the historical stories to a modern one, and that is the story of Symar. Now for this, I'm going to bring in Dr. Wayne Lott. Now he's the founding researcher at Symar, and he's got his own take on modern snake oil salesmen. There are examples that you can see being advertised on television that if you actually look at the research behind it, I would nominate some of those as snake oil. He's talking about all those vitamins and those health aids you can buy late at night from those infomercials. Snake oil to me is a term that's used to describe a conscious marketing to gullible people of a product that has virtually no merit other than to make profit for the snake oil salesman. That is first-degree snake oil, deliberately deceiving people with something you know doesn't work. But what about the second scenario, when the person selling the idea really believes it's true, either because they're blinded by their own bias or because they're clinging to an outdated idea? In the scientific world, we deal with either good science or bad science. And 
Whether science is good or bad changes with time. You know, sometimes what was regarded as good science turns out to have been bad science, and what other people might have condemned as bad science, for example, because you didn't use the methods that everybody else is using, then becomes recognized as, as good science. Researchers are human beings, so they have certain baked-in beliefs that are really hard to shake just like anyone. But to find the real answers, they have to challenge those old assumptions. And they have to do it rigorously. Yeah, well, to avoid the snake oil pitfall, you have to design your experiments very carefully. A well-designed experiment is going to give you data. It's going to give you numbers. You can put it on a graph. You can take a look at it. You can do statistics on it. Those numbers on a graph help you see your implicit biases. That's where the microscopic hair analysis ran into problems. They could look at two hair samples and say, yeah, they look the same. But it wasn't what Lott would call a well-designed experiment. It didn't provide clear data. It didn't tell the investigators how many other people might match with that hair. This isn't a hypothetical issue for Dr. Lott and Simar. They're bringing forward an idea that's bold and unique, proposing that type 2 diabetes can be identified treated, and possibly even reversed using a hormone released from the liver. Now, for a century, scientists and doctors working on type 2 diabetes have almost exclusively focused on the hormone insulin, which is produced by the pancreas. Looking at the role of the liver, well, that is disruptive. Let me be blunt. Simar is probably going to get accused of selling snake oil. I've experienced that, but one of the approaches that I have in terms of dealing with critics is to say, if you are your most severe critic, nobody else can be. You, you attack your own ideas first. And that's what we've done. Yes, this gets at the root of what makes a good scientist. You do everything you can to destroy your favorite hypothesis, to disprove it before anyone else gets the chance. So when your detractors come up and say, well, what about this alternative explanation? You can say, yes, we thought of that, and we did this experiment, and we found out that you can't explain the results that way. You want to attack your beloved hypothesis as hard as you can. Try to disprove it a hundred different ways, and only when it is still standing after all that, only then, can you say that it's probably true? Our science is so tight that I have been able to answer every question that has come up by the skeptics, no matter if they were searching for an answer or, or if they were trying to shoot me down. Maybe the most damaging effect of snake oil isn't just that people fall for the bad science. It's that they're not going to be able to recognize good science when they see it afterwards. It's going to have to take a really very dedicated old paradigm supporter to not recognize that, wow, this is the missing link. It's taken a hundred years for us to get here from insulin, and now we've got the next step. Dr. Lott isn't exaggerating when he says it's taken a hundred years for us to get here. Frederick Bansing and Charles Best published their insulin discovery in 1921. A lot of great scientists have come and gone in the centuries since. Each one moving our collective knowledge forward, one step at a time. So in episode seven, Generations, we'll look at how each researcher stands on the shoulders of those who came before them, and how sometimes it takes more than one generation to disrupt a paradigm. I'm Dan Riskin. This has been Inside the Breakthrough, how science comes to life. 
Oh, one last thing. When people started complaining that his snake oil didn't make them feel better, Clark Stanley started adding opium. Now, the opium didn't really cure anything, but wow, it sure made them feel a lot better when they took the snake oil. But Stanley did eventually get called on its bluff. The Pure Food and Drug Act was passed in 1906, that's the precursor to the FDA, and they examined Stanley's products and they declared that they had no medicinal value. So Clark Stanley was fined $20. 